Chapter Fourteen of the Professor. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Professor by Charlotte Bronte. Chapter Fourteen. If I was punctual in quitting Mademoiselle Reuter's domicile, I was at least equally punctual in arriving there. I came the next day at five minutes before two, and on reaching the schoolroom door, before I opened it, I heard a rapid gabbling sound, which warned me that the prière du midi was not yet concluded. I waited the termination thereof. It would have been impious to intrude my heretical presence during its progress. How the repeater of the prayer did cackle and splutter! I never before or since heard language announced with such steam-engine haste. Notre Père qui est au ciel went off like a shot, then followed an address to Marie, Vierge Celeste, Rhine de Anoges, Maison d'Or, to d'Ivoire, and then an invocation to the saint of the day. And then down they all sat, and the solemn rite was over, and I entered, flinging the door wide and striding in fast, as it was my wont to do now. For I had found that in entering with aplomb, and mounting the estrade with emphasis, consisted the grand secret of ensuring immediate silence. The folding doors between the two classes, opened for the prayer, were instantly closed. A matress, workbox in hand, took her seat by her appropriate desk. The pupils sat still with their pens and books before them. My three beauties in the van, now well humbled by a demeanour of consistent coolness, sat erect with their hands folded quietly on their knees. They had given up giggling and whispering to each other, and no longer ventured to utter pert speeches in my presence. They now only talked to me occasionally with their eyes, by means of which organs they could still, however, say very audacious and coquettish things. I had affection, goodness, modesty, real talent, ever employed those bright orbs as interpreters, I do not think I could have refrained from giving a kind and encouraging, perhaps an ardent reply, now and then. But as it was, I found pleasure in answering the glance of vanity with the gaze of stoicism. Youthful, fair, brilliant, as were many of my pupils, I can truly say that in me they never saw any other bearing than such as an ostia, though just guardian, might have observed towards them. If any doubt the accuracy of this assertion, as inferring more conscientious self-denial, or Scipio-like self-control, than they feel disposed to give me credit for, let them take into consideration the following circumstances, which, while detracting from my merit, justify my veracity. No, O incredulous reader! that a master stands in a somewhat different relation towards a pretty, light-headed, probably ignorant girl, to that occupied by a partner at a ball, or a gallant on the promenade. A professor does not meet his pupil to see her dressed in satin and muslin, with hair perfumed and curled, neck scarcely shaded by aerial lace, round white arms circled with bracelets, feet dressed for the gliding dance. It is not his business to whirl her through the walls, to feed her with compliments, to heighten her beauty by the flush of gratified vanity. Neither does he encounter her on the smooth-rolled, tree-shaded boulevard, in the green and sunny park, whither she repairs clad in her becoming walking-dress, her scarf thrown with grace over her shoulders, her little bonnet scarcely screening her curls, the red rose under its brim adding a new tint to the softer rose on her cheek, her face and eyes too, illumined with smiles, perhaps as transient as the sunshine of the gala day, but also quite as brilliant. It is not his office to walk by her side, to listen to her lively chat, to carry her parasol, 
scarcely larger than a broad green leaf, to lead in a ribbon her Blenheim spaniel or Italian greyhound. No, he finds her in the schoolroom, plainly dressed, with books before her. Owing to her education, or her nature, books are to her a nuisance, and she opens them with aversion, yet her teacher must instill into her mind the contents of these books. That mind resists the admission of grave information, it recoils, it grows restive, sullen tempers are shown, disfiguring frowns spoil the symmetry of the face, sometimes coarse gestures banish grace from the deportment, while muttered expressions, redolent of native and ineradicable vulgarity, desecrate the sweetness of the voice. Where the temperament is serene, though the intellect be sluggish, an unconquerable dullness opposes every effort to instruct. Where there is cunning, but not energy, dissimulation, falsehood, a thousand schemes and tricks are put in play to evade the necessity of application. In short, to the tutor, female youth, female charms are like tapestry hangings, of which the wrong side is continually turned towards him, and even when he sees the smooth, neat external surface, he so well knows what knots, long stitches, and jagged ends are behind, that he has scarce a temptation to admire too fondly the seemly forms and bright colours exposed to general view. Our likings are regulated by our circumstances. The artist prefers a hilly country because it is picturesque, the engineer a flat one because it is convenient. The man of pleasure likes what he calls a fine woman, she suits him. The fashionable young gentleman admires the fashionable young lady, she is of his kind. The toil-worn, fagged, probably irritable tutor, blind almost to beauty, insensible to airs and graces, glories chiefly in certain mental qualities. Application, love of knowledge, natural capacity, docility, truthfulness, gratefulness, are the charms that attract his notice and win his regard. These he seeks, but seldom meets. These, if by chance he finds, he would fain retain for ever, and when separation deprives him of them, he feels as if some ruthless hand had snatched from him his only ewe-lamp. Such being the case, and the case it is, my readers will agree with me that there was nothing either very meritorious or very marvellous in the integrity and moderation of my conduct at Mademoiselle Reuter's Pensionnat de Demoiselles. My first business this afternoon consisted in reading the list of places for the month, determined by the relative correctness of the compositions given the preceding day. The list was headed, as usual, by the name of Sylvie, that plain, quiet little girl I have described before as being at once the best and ugliest pupil in the establishment. The second place had fallen to the lot of a certain Leonie Ledru, a diminutive, sharp-featured, and parchment-skinned creature of quick wits, frail conscience, and indurated feelings. A lawyer-like thing, of whom I used to say that, had she been a boy, she would have made a model of an unprincipled, clever attorney. Then came Eulalie, the proud beauty, the Juno of the school, whom six long years of drilling in the simple grammar of the English language had compelled, despite the stiff phlegm of her intellect, to acquire a mechanical acquaintance with most of its rules. No smile, no trace of pleasure or satisfaction appeared in Sylvie's nun-like and passive face as she heard her name read first. I always felt saddened by the sight of that poor girl's absolute quiescence on all occasions, and it was my custom to look at her, to address her, as seldom as possible. Her extreme docility, her assiduous perseverance, would have recommended her warmly to my good opinion. Her modesty, her intelligence, would have induced me to feel most kindly, most affectionately towards her, notwithstanding the almost ghastly plainness of her features, the disproportion of her form, the corpse-like lack of animation in her countenance, 
had I not been aware that every friendly word, every kindly action, would be reported by her to her confessor, and by him misinterpreted and poisoned. Once I laid my hand on her head, in token of approbation, I thought Sylvie was going to smile. Her dim eye almost kindled. But, presently, she shrank from me. I was a man and a heretic. She, poor child, a destined nun and devoted Catholic. Thus a fourfold wall of separation divided her mind from mine. A pert smirk and a hard glance of triumph was Leonie's method of testifying her gratification. Eulalie looked sullen and envious. She had hoped to be first. Hortense and Caroline exchanged a reckless grimace on hearing their names read out somewhere near the bottom of the list. The brand of mental inferiority was considered by them as no disgrace, their hopes for the future being based solely on their personal attractions. This affair arranged, the regular lesson followed. During a brief interval, employed by the pupils in ruling their books, my eye, ranging carelessly over the benches, observed for the first time that the father's seat in the farthest row, a seat usually vacant, was again filled by the new scholar, the Mademoiselle Henry, so ostentatiously recommended to me by the directress. Today I had on my spectacles. Her appearance, therefore, was clear to me at the first glance. I had not to puzzle over it. She looked young. Yet, had I been required to name her exact age, I should have been somewhat nonplussed. The slightness of her figure might have suited seventeen. A certain anxious and preoccupied expression of face seemed the indication of riper years. She was dressed, like all the rest, in a dark stuff gown and a white collar. Her features were dissimilar to any there, not so rounded, more defined, yet scarcely regular. The shape of her head, too, was different, the superior part more developed, the base considerably less. I felt assured, at first sight, that she was not a Belgian. Her complexion, her countenance, her lineaments, her figure, were all distinct from theirs, and, evidently, the type of another race, of a race less gifted with fullness of flesh and plenitude of blood, less jocund, material, unthinking. When I first cast my eyes on her, she sat looking fixedly down, her chin resting on her hand, and she did not change her attitude till I commenced the lesson. None of the Belgian girls would have retained one position, and that a reflective one, for the same length of time. Yet, having intimated that her appearance was peculiar, as being unlike that of her Flemish companions, I have little more to say respecting it. I can pronounce no encomiums on her beauty, for she was not beautiful, nor offer condolence on her plainness, for neither was she plain. A careworn character of forehead, and a corresponding moulding of the mouth, struck me with a sentiment resembling surprise but these traits would probably have passed unnoticed by any less crotchety observer. Now, reader, though I have spent more than a page in describing Mademoiselle Henry, I know well enough that I have left on your mind's eye no distinct picture of her. I have not painted her complexion, nor her eyes, nor her hair, nor even drawn the outline of her shape. You cannot tell whether her nose was aquiline or retruse, whether her chin was long or short, her face square or oval. Nor could I the first day, and it is not my intention to communicate to you at once a knowledge I myself gained by little and little. I gave a short exercise, which they all wrote down. I saw the new pupil was puzzled at first with the novelty of the form and language. Once or twice she looked at me with a sort of painful solicitude, as not comprehending at all what I meant. Then she was not ready when the others were. She could not write her phrases so fast as they did. I would not help her. I went on relentless. She looked at me. Her eyes said most plainly, I cannot follow you. I disregarded the appeal, and, 
carelessly leaning back in my chair, glancing from time to time with a nonchalant air out of the window, I dictated a little faster. On looking towards her again, I perceived her face clouded with embarrassment, but she was still writing on most diligently. I paused a few seconds. She employed the interval in hurriedly reperusing what she had written, and shame and discomfiture were apparent in her countenance. She evidently found she had made great nonsense of it. In ten minutes more the dictation was complete, and, having allowed a brief space in which to correct it, I took their books. It was with a reluctant hand Mademoiselle Henry gave up hers, but, having once yielded it to my possession, she composed her anxious face, as if, for the present, she had resolved to dismiss regret, and had made up her mind to be thought unprecedentedly stupid. Glancing over her exercise, I found that several lines had been omitted, but what was written contained very few faults. I instantly inscribed Bon at the bottom of the page and returned it to her. She smiled, at first incredulously, then as if reassured, but did not lift her eyes. She could look at me, it seemed, when perplexed and bewildered, but not when gratified. I thought it scarcely fair. End of chapter 14